2019, protests broke out in Hong Kong over an extradition bill that would allow alleged criminals to be sent to trial in mainland China. Though the law was eventually shelved, within months, the protests evolved into a massive democracy movement in China's last enclave of freedom. This was not the first time people had taken to the streets, but it could very well be the last. Spread across multiple decades, Hong Kong's political turmoil has left the city divided in two. The Blue Ribbons, who are supportive of the Beijing government, and the Yellow Ribbons, who want democracy. Hong Kong's political conflict is often told as a very black and white story, but things are not as simple as they seem. Welcome to the Grey Zone. In this limited series, we bring you previously unheard perspectives of Hong Kong's political conflict. With each episode, we'll uncover details of how each piece shapes the city. I'm your host, Taylor Ribane, and you're listening to The Curiously Candid Show. Hong Kong police force used to always be called Asia's finest, mm -hmm. serving with duty and loyalty. How do you feel about that title now? It's a joke. So I will label myself as... The wording is up to you. Hi, I'm a cop. I'd hate Beijing. If you were to ask an average Hong Konger who was the villain in 2019, they'd most likely say the police force. The government has always been a source of discontent. But up until recently, Hong Kongers were proud of their police force. They made the city feel safe. But things quickly changed when a peaceful protest on June 12, 2019 was dispersed with tear gas and rubber bullets. This was the first of many physical clashes between the police force and protesters that occurred that year. Since then, there's been countless numbers of misconduct allegations against the police. Their approval ratings dropped to an all-time low, with 40% of respondents giving them a mark of zero. In 2019, I covered the protests as a journalist, spending months on the front line. I often faced the police and wondered who are the people behind the guns and armor. When Thomas, our guest today, agreed to come on the show, I saw an opportunity to share a perspective that we never heard from during the protests. Yet, it's also a massive risk as the government continues to crack down on any and all dissidents. In fact, the risk is so high that to protect Thomas's real identity and his job, even I don't know his real name. Can you just introduce yourself, how you'd like us to call you? I'm quite typical Hong Kong people and just call me Thomas. I'm born in the 80s and I graduated in the post-SARS years. When the Hong Kong economy is going down, everybody is hungry for jobs. That's how I entered the job market. It was quite desperate. Now I'm, I'm a police constable for around 13 years. Did it feel like a good job? Were you, did you feel lucky to get into the police force? I feel like I can finally get a stable job, but I don't feel I'm really excited because it's still a job. I think the salary explains everything. To be a police trainee, you can get about double of the salary of a fresh graduate comparing to the street market. So yeah, everybody's happy. Everybody was happy because, oh, finally I can be, be independent from the parents. Do you think you would have ever become a police officer if it wasn't for the economy at the time and the circumstances under which you graduated? I think I can have many more options if it is not economy problem. 
but my personality is adaptive to the, any government jobs because I'm not a, a career mind person. I just need a stable job to support my paycheck. Many colleagues like me, they just want a paycheck and go travel to Japan twice a year, and that's it. Thomas's generation is old enough to have hazy memories of the Tiananmen Square massacre of 1989, when troops armed with assault rifles and accompanied by tanks fired at student demonstrators demanding greater freedoms in Beijing. There was a volley of tear gas. Then, without warning, the army opened up with bullets, firing indiscriminately at the crowd. They just killed another one in the square. People use bicycles, pedicabs... By the time Hong Kong was handed back to China by the British in 1997, Thomas had become a teenager. His generation is one marked by change and transition, and of growing Chinese influence. I think the biggest news in our generation is the um, Tiananmen in the 1989. Even though I was in the kindergarten, and the whole atmosphere in Hong Kong is blaming the Beijing government, how he react to the university student in Beijing. Before that, we all believe that China is going to be more civilized, but it turned out in an ugly way. So it's like a fear root in our mind of our generation. And then the handover of Hong Kong to the China. And then at the stroke of midnight, history edged Hong Kong out of the arms of Britain. A century and a half of imperial rule ended with the lowering of the Union flag. At the beginning, everybody is quite optimistic about the future because everybody is happy about their life, um, the, the degree of freedom. Now, Hong Kong people are to run Hong Kong. The degree of uh, freedom of speech. At that time, we have um, fantasy about China. Um, we want to know more about the China. And we hoped that, we believed that China is going to modernize in the near future. But now it's, it's completely different story now. When do you think that bubble burst? I think it's since the President Xi. Before that, many Hong Kong people work in China. They do business with China. And we don't feel anything is worrying. So after President Xi and, and we find that there's an invisible hand from the Beijing and slowly squeezing the, not just the freedom of Hong Kong, and it influenced every part of government, governing in Hong Kong. China's influence in Hong Kong has been growing ever since Xi Jinping became president in 2013. His ultimate goal is to reunify China, including Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan. Unite the whole country and continue to strive forward to complete unification of our country. Could you feel that invisible hand in the police force as well since 
President Xi came to power? As a policeman, I think everybody can feel the difference. But it's the questions about, do you like it or not? Some people do. I don't like it. Do you think you ever could express your opinion amongst your colleagues? Not completely honest. We always have a fear that if you raise a problem, if you say a different opinion to your colleagues or to your boss, and you're always afraid of getting fired or put you into a difficult position in your job to make you leave yourself. It just gossips on the WhatsApp groups. What are these WhatsApp groups? Like everybody else, like any other jobs, we are heavily rely on WhatsApps and we talk about works, we talk about gossips, everything on WhatsApp. So the policemen, the police officers think that being a yellow weapon is like a traitor in the police. So if you find someone who is leaning to the yellow weapon, they will spread the news or spread the gossips in the WhatsApp groups. Do you think you're safe or do you think there might be some people who suspect you of being yellow? There's no 100% safe. So I have to be as careful as possible because you got you got colleagues, colleagues, and you don't know what finally leaks to the entire police social network. That sounds really isolating. Yeah, that's true. Thomas is an exception within the police force. His political views have isolated him from his colleagues, who for the most part loathe the pro-democracy camp. Covering the protest in 2019, there are some horrifying images of violence that have been burned into my mind. A lot of those involved back then have since struggled. These images, they just will not leave your mind. Do you have any moments like that as well that are kind of frozen in your mind? My first image coming from my head is the uh, the bullet shot into the goggles. Are you talking about the Indonesian journalist who lost yeah. her eye? Yes, it's her. Baby Mega Inda was shot in the eye at point-blank range with a rubber bullet whilst live-streaming for an Indonesian publication. She has filed a legal request to find out the name of the police officer who injured her, but has not received any information so far. She has lost all vision in her right eye. And when that news was on the TV, the general public is uh, emphasizing for that uh, uh, female protesters, while a police officer will think uh, she deserves what she gets. And the police officer will think that it's a fake news. Could you explain that a little bit more? What is the image of being a police officer in within the police force? How do they perceive themselves? Well, many police officers think that they are a hero, that they will um, fulfill the gap of the law. If there's something that the law wouldn't work, they will fill the gap of punishing the bad guys. I never think I'm a hero. I always question myself of um, my own judgment. But some people never question themselves that 
those people exist. A part of this completely different personality that Thomas speaks of is a strong devotion to do what is believed to be right. But beyond this facade of seemingly confident heroism is shock, confusion, and fear. In 2014, Hong Kong went through another wave of protests called the Umbrella Movement. Student protesters occupied the city, setting up camps on some of the biggest highways, bringing the city to a standstill for nearly three months. Yet, the protests remained largely peaceful. They tried to remove this tent. This tent, we think that this is our last, last place to go. If this tent fall, we all fall. When in 2019, protests began again, most Hong Kongers expected it to go more or less the same as it had in 2014. How were you trained to respond to protests in the first place? So I understand you were trained to respond to more peaceful mm-hmm. protests, kind of sit-ins? Yeah, the training just... Mm, expecting the the protester will be sit there and train themselves, train themselves. The training is was focusing on how to remove those people from the important buildings or main roads without getting, with without get hurting anybody, including them themselves or ourselves. I think the the police management is was learning from the umbrella movement. And you can see many new gadgets and new ammunition was um, purchased after the umbrella movement. And they are always trying new stuff, new toys and new guns and without tests beforehand. Is that what it feels like? Like boys playing with new toys and guns? Yeah, my colleagues are was quite excited with the new guns and toys. Many of the police officers are just fantasizing about guns and weapons and they just like it, like militaries. What were they particularly excited about? (laughs) We've never seen something like that before. And we hope that it it works. The strategy is scare away the protesters. So we just gear on and get off the police vehicle. I don't know, wave wave our weapons and and the people go away and we are all happy. So you have your training, you have your new toys, but how does it actually look like in real life? Um, how does it play out? Most of the time we spend is on the standby. Either it's a police station or, or the government headquarters or in the police vehicle, and we just wait for orders. So we have um, many new ideas to kill kill our times. What did you do then? Get a lot of uh, external battery for my iPhones, online games, pawns, sleeping, snacks. Yeah, it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a lot of waiting around for something to yeah. happen. I would say 90% of the time is waiting. And what about the rest of the 10%? Mm, What do you do when it's time to actually pull out the weapons, when the protesters aren't scared and aren't running away? Everybody is panicked because our generation never witnessed a real protest or, or riot in our generation. So it's something new, something new concept in these years. So we're always afraid or worried about we getting injured at work 
we all hope that the new gadgets can protect us from getting injured from work and get back home safely. What did people think they were going to get injured from? We don't know. We just fear about uncertainty. There's uh, um, rocks and stones and exits and fire, everything. One idea that comes up time and time again in our conversation is fear. Whether that's fear of getting injured or evoking fear in protesters, it seems to underline everything that Thomas talks about. But there's one type of fear that I'm especially interested in, fear of repercussion. That's what most protesters are worried about, being arrested and jailed. In the case of police, on the other hand, there were seemingly no consequences to their actions. According to a report published by the Washington Post, Hong Kong police repeatedly broke their own rules using excessive violence in restraining and dispersing protesters. Yet, an inquiry made by the Hong Kong police watchdog concluded that police conduct during the protests was within guidelines, though there was, quote-unquote, room for improvement. If there is still any wishful thinking that by escalating violence, the Hong Kong SAL government will yield to pressure to satisfy the so-called political demands. I'm making this statement clear and loud here. That will not happen. Violence is not going to give us any solution. Were the officers at the time worried about the excessive use of violence? I mean. Everybody at the time was talking about the excessive use of violence by the police force. Was that ever, ever a discussion amongst your colleagues or your um, superiors? Yeah, there's always an earnest discussion about um, the use of force. But um, there's no answer for that because nobody knows either the court will justify if someone die or seriously injured and if the case is put on the court and it's not up to the police itself. Were they worried about that? Everybody worried. Everybody worried that somebody might actually accidentally get killed? Everybody is worried about the legal responsibility for shooting tear gas or, or any use of weapon because we, we are just a normal worker or, or we just want to finish our job, but we don't want to kill anybody. But if someone ordered me to do so and I, and I have to do so, I just want to avoid the legal responsibility. And so far up to today, we don't know of anybody. Have any policemen been, been brought into court for abusing... No, force? no, not yet, not even one. But we still worry because we can't explain everything ourselves. In the field, um, there's so many things happening in the same times, and um, honestly, we don't know. We don't know what we are doing. Mm, we all worry about. Do I have a right explanation to my actions? Can, can I pass under the examination of the court? We all have that questions in, in our head. 
I would think it, uh, it's 80% of worry about getting myself into jail and 20% of getting somebody injured. Have you ever heard anybody express regret? Of, of using, using violence? Force? Using force? No. I believe that um, the person who beating people will never regret that because that's how they think and act. And they believe that it's the right thing to do. At the peak of the protests, police often refer to protesters as cockroaches, reducing them to dirty pests that do not deserve to be treated like humans. Yet, ironically, cockroaches, or siukang in Cantonese, roughly translates to little strong creatures who are resilient in the face of adversity. It comes from the idea that cockroaches can survive anything, even an apocalypse. You call all of us cockroaches, and that is what Hitler called before the massacre, the Jews! Caught between his personal values and those of the police force, Thomas, unlike his colleagues, could not bring himself to treat a group he feels he belongs to as cockroaches. When I was in Mongkok and the protesters setting fires on the street, and I was uh, taking part of the sweeping parties, I feel so struggling because I don't. Everybody agree that this government need a change. I don't see an end of this. I feel desperate. I'm in my uniform and taking the blames from the protesters. I don't know what exactly I'm standing at. And if somebody had told you, Mm -hmm. Thomas, you're going to fire the tear gas, Mm -hmm. would you have been able to do so? If I don't want to fire, but someone ordered me to fire tear gas, I will shoot the tear gas in the middle of the air or middle of nobody. Yeah, that's how the trick is played. Could they punish you for that? No, they can't punish me for a misthought. If you weren't in uniform and if you weren't a police officer, do you think you would have participated in the protest? I would definitely take part of the peaceful protest or the the march in, in the daytime, generally. And probably I would support the people who fight the government. What do they think about your job, your friends and your family? My family is always worried about my personal safety. And for my friends, some of my friends just never contact with me. It happened. They will never listen to my explanation. They will never listen to how, how, how I think about the government. And some of my friends who are also protesters would like to hear uh, my experience of being a police and they want uh, information from me about the the police and the government. And I got friends arrested for uh, taking part of the protest. So I give the advice uh, to them as a friend. What kind of advice did you give them Um, during the protests one of the biggest pieces of advice I heard was not to use your personal octopus, your Metro card. 
So um, I always advise my friend uh, when they are out for protest, always use a second iPhone, disposable phones, and disposable SIM cards, and uh, paying cash instead of octopus, and using VPNs. Could you explain that a little bit? What kind of information would they get from the octopus cards? Every time you spend, you have a record in your octopus service. And you got a CCTV. And if uh, you wear the same clothing in different spots of protests happened, and it's easy to spot that you are one of the activists. If you are supportive of the democracy movement, if you would have protested, if you weren't a policeman, then why did you not quit? How could you stay on? Mm -hmm. um, it's always a struggle. I still need a salary for my paycheck. I'm chicken to jump out of my comfort zone. After spending a decade on the same occupation and I feel I'm outdated. I don't know if I could be competitive to many new people, creative new people. To be honest, before the protest, I feel comfortable and happy with my job because daily normal police job is more interesting than uh, boring office work. But until the protest, there's so many challenge that I have never considered before. To be isolated with friends and to be lying about my political opinion. And I am not courage to tell everybody my work is uh, being a policeman. Being a policeman now is like um, you are a loser, that you don't have another option in the market. So that's the only best shot you have. So it's kind of embarrassing to say that, oh, I, I work for the government as a policeman. Is there anything else that you'd like to say or add to the conversation that we have had today? I would say um, I believe there's some proportion of the policemen in Hong Kong will think like I do. But like I said, under the pressure, the culture, we will never truly understand each other and identify who is going to think in the same way as I do. But I believe that minority like me in the police still exists. So we are just normal human and we just want a job and get home safely. In the next episode, we talk to Jordan Pang, the district councillor of Saiwan District, whose brother Michael Pang is one of the 47 Democrats arrested under the sweeping national security law. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at Curiously Candid and Instagram at The Curiously Candid Show. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever platforms you get your podcast from. I'm your host, Taylor Ibana, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>